Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show. How plants and people and bodies are resilient is just mind-blowing. Because I think the story of this food is as much the story of the people that eat it, that grow it, that transport it, that have traveled with it, that have snuck it across borders, that have put seeds in their pockets. I mean, that's the food that we eat in America today. It was like majority of it was snuck into people's luggage on the way over from a very long journey. One of the reasons I'm really interested in food and this date of 1492 of this like exploration, quote unquote, into the new world and this moment where these staple ingredients that we all know and love, tomatoes, chilies, chocolate, all of that was taken from the Americas and is now staple throughout the rest of the world. And it ties into me to this question of gentrification that's happening in our neighborhoods now. And the erasure of the histories of those ingredients. I think what gentrification does and what colonialism does is it erases memory. I think that part of that erasure, so much is lost. So much is lost. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, Artists and activists bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people. On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors, into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Sita Kuratomi Baumik is an artist, writer, and educator who understands art as a strategy to connect personal and public histories. Her research focuses on decolonizing the hierarchy of the senses and the impact of migration. She was raised in Los Angeles, she's based in Oakland, and she is Indian and Japanese Colombian American. She is a founding member of the People's Kitchen Collective in Oakland, California, along with Jocelyn Jackson and Saqib Kival. Together they produce community meals that narrate our migration. The goal of the People's Kitchen is not only to fill our stomachs, but also to nourish our souls, feed our minds, and fuel a movement. Here's Chelsea's interview with Sita Baumick. I just saw your Beyonce thing for the list for YBCA, which congratulations. That's awesome. I don't totally know what it is. Maybe let's start there. You guys are on the YBCA. What's the list? So the YBCA 100 list is actually uh, a list that's put together by the folks at YBCA of people that um, I, that are influencing their work. And so it's pretty incredible to be on this list with Steph Curry and uh, <laughs> Beyonce and then other, you know, local folks like Jeff Chang and um, Hank Willis Thomas and, and other artists that, you know, we also look up to. Um, but yeah, we, we, we found out actually from uh, Sakib's roommate. She came in and said, congratulations, guys. And we said, cool. What for? <laughs> and it was like such an amazing surprise. <laughs> 
It was kind of awesome to be on a list like with a bunch of other artists, but a bunch of just like creative visionaries or whatever. I really like how um, YBCA is pushing kind of the boundaries of like what that means to like make creative impact in communities, which I think like is totally part of what you guys do, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that I, I guess in academic speak, you'd call it interdisciplinary, but I think in real life, that's just the, how we all work. It's like we, we absorb so much from so many places and it's never just about food or about art or about any one particular thing. Yeah, totally. So welcome to the show, Sita. I was just testing my levels, but yeah. then we got talking. Um, I'm here today with Sita Baumik, who's part of the People's Kitchen Collective, amongst other things. And we're going to talk about some food traditions and all the projects they've been doing. I went to this incredible dinner last weekend at Elena Studios, which is new, right? It's just recently opened. Um, and you should totally check out because there's going to be more things happening there. So I guess when I think about you, I, I thought about like what started your love of food? So my love of food, uh, it runs deep and it was something that I think was so, so present in my life growing up that I'd never actually paid attention to it. Like that's how, that's how deep it was. Um, and I, my dad is the fruit whisperer. He is so obsessed with growing fruit, eating fruit, um, finding fruit, and vegetables and um, just growing up with that incredible care and love and excitement. Uh, like it just, it seemed like his face, it looked like he won the lottery when you, you know, find a new mango tree or plant something. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that also for me, food is one of the ways that we communicate in our families and in terrible times when we have nothing to say to each other is the second that everybody gets together in the kitchen. We all know our role. Like we know who's supposed to get the napkins and we know who's supposed to, uh, finish the salad and who's, you know, supposed to sit where even. Um, and that I think has actually really been this huge source of communication for us. And that's just a way of, of being with each other, um, through wonderful things and through terrible things. That's amazing. Uh, so you grew up in LA and from what I can tell your family, like it's, it's a complicated place to be in Sita's family. Like, tell me about your family. Tell me, tell me what, what it's like to be in your family. Um, so it, there's only four people in our immediate family. It feels like 12 though, <laughs> maybe because each of us have a couple personalities or something. But, um, my mother is Japanese Colombian and my father is Indian from West Bengal. And, um, you know, we grew up, I grew up in the eighties where actually being mixed in LA was like really kind of normal and common, which is kind of incredible to think about now. And, um, and we, yeah, I mean, we had this amazing kind of people would always ask me and they still ask me they're like what did you eat growing up and I'll be like well we'd have like lentils and miso soup and rice and <laughs> I keep going to that and fried plantains and you know and 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 um but yeah uh my my folks you know we're a little kind of outpost um we didn't have a big family we have a huge extended family in other countries but it was just the four of us I was just talking to another friend from L.A. who was talking about Seder, and she was saying, I just thought that, like, matzo ball soup made with miso was normal till I was, like, about 14, and I went somewhere else and realized that it was made with chicken broth because everybody's a vegetarian in her family. And um, 
I don't know. I think about how so much of your work um, stems from people asking you questions, maybe like that, but that you just start telling people, and then you there's this unraveling of like what the complexity of these stories of migration and history are in that. Um, how'd you come to kind of like, when did you realize that? And if it was normal to be mixed in LA in the eighties, like, I don't know, how did you start telling that story or something? So when I got to grad school, uh, in the MFA program at CCA, I, had this moment where I decided to work with food, um, partially because I knew that on some level it would be pleasurable for me if I decide if I, if I use that kind of as a consistent material. Um, but also by that time, I'd really come to have a deep love for the way that ingredients hold stories and the stories of just these crazy migrations across oceans and across generations. And I think one of the really amazing thing about ingredients is that, um, it, even though seeds and ingredients and soil and all of these um, things change. It is this in some way you can, you can taste the same flavors that your ancestors did um, and you can pass those on to the future. And it's just this kind of like mashup of like past, present and future that um, has been circulating at the globe for, in most cases about 500 years for a lot of ingredients when that, that 1492 moment happened. Um, and I'm just fascinated by it. I, I tell my students that if you're obsessed with something, that the work would, will do itself. And I feel like that's what ingredients do for me. I'm so fascinated by it. I am constantly asking questions and picking at things and putting things in my mouth and looking things up and finding out some incredible things about the way that the places that we've been in this world. <laughs> All right, we're back from a short break because we had to eat some toast. <laughs> And talk about plums. So tell me about plums in your family when you're done chewing. <laughs> this is a great interview. <laughs> Most cultures have this ingredient that's like kind of a mythical medicinal cure-all. And for um, Japanese folks, I'm pretty confident about saying that that's umeboshi, which is this dried, salted, pickled plum that will basically cure everything and keep you alive forever. Um, and... So with the People's Kitchen Collective, we started this project called the Kitchen Remedies. And in the process of researching it, my, I was asking my mom just about different home remedies. And she said, you know, when you had salmonella and you were younger, I asked your grandmother what to give you. And she said, umeboshi. And that's, I remember eating that when I was a kid with a little bit of rice just to settle my stomach. And she also told me, and this is the part that I never heard before, that my grandmother was 18 when she left Japan to go to Colombia to get on a ship to go to a place that she'd never been to, that's, you know, language that she'd never spoken before. And she was in her 60s before she actually was able to go back for a visit. And the first thing that she did was that she bought a barrel of umeboshi for every single family, Japanese, Ameri- Japanese Colombian family that lived in the Valle de Incauca in Colombia. So my mother has this distinct memory of being 13 years old and the whole family getting this truck and going to the port, um, the the port in Colombia and receiving these like giant barrels of plums. And she said, you know, I said, the flavor is really strong. Like, did you, did you like it? And she said, well, it never occurred to me not to like it because everybody was so excited that they were going to eat these plums that, you know, of course, like I just got caught up in it and I, 
I don't even know if I liked it or not. And she started telling me that there were all these myths that the the elders would tell them, like, oh, if you eat it when you're well, it'll give you a stomachache. But if you have a stomachache and you eat it, you'll get cured. And it was all these lies that they would tell the kids so that they wouldn't go in the basement and pick the barrels. And so my mother left when she was 18 um, to come to the U.S. And when she came back seven years later, they were still eating from those same barrels. These plums last upwards of 10, sometimes 20 years. (laughs) They're considered not great eating after 10 years, but it was, like, so precious that in in, in my family, yeah. I mean, it was just edible gold. And your dad loves plums, too, because he loves all fruit. Does he have a relationship with them? My dad doesn't have as special a relationship with plums as jackfruit. This is his his new thing. Every time I go to L.A., he buys me a new jackfruit. And I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but it looks like if you dropped it off a four-story building, it could kill you. <laughs> it's spiky and green and hard, and it's sticky on the inside and kind of funky smelling. Um, the sweet thing about my dad is that anytime he thinks I like something, he'll go out and then, you know, buy tons of it and then I'll love it. And then you can't even tell where the, where it started, you know, do I like it because he liked it or does he like it because I liked it? (laughs) So now you're making umeboshi and where do these plums come from? Uh, the story of these plums is really uh, fascinating because there were Japanese American families that were living in California. It was basically a, a famine that had was the precedent for Japanese folks to um, spread throughout the Americas to Hawaii, California, Brazil, Peru, Colombia, and um, and in different waves of of migration. But these uh, these families brought the seeds with them and planted them. And uh, after internment that happened in World War II, the plums kind of the property, uh, a lot of the Japanese American families lost their properties. And so the the plum trees are kind of scattered throughout the state. Uh, And there are a few, I've heard of one family um, in Northern California that's that's still growing um, and picking them, but they're, they're pretty difficult to come by. That's interesting. Did does your family have one in LA? You know, they don't. My dad has papaya growing. He's got <laughs> all sorts of herbs, uh, but no no plums. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so I lived in Japan when I was a baby. And so I I have a relationship with Umoboshi too that, you know, it's for everything. Mm-hmm. Right? And what I didn't really realize, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about this as you're talking about this is... I live somewhere now where Santa Rosa plums are the cultural lineage, right? So they were grown mostly for prunes, actually. They were they were Italian plums, and they were Santa Rosa plums, and they were all ripped up for grapes. Um, but they were brought by the Italian families there. But everybody, I mean, everyone has a big, everybody does a lot of food preservation in Sonoma County, and they don't, people are doing a moboshi with these other kinds of plums. And I don't know if it's going to work or not. Do you think it will? I've heard of some other experiments. I mean, one of the other fascinating kind of lineages of of these plums is that uh, in Mexico, there's a, something called chamoy. And chamoy is made with a chabacano, which is an apricot. And it has, there's a relationship between that and the umeboshi. Um, and I think it's because of the unavailability of those green plums, apricots started to be substituted for that. It's usually made with um, hibiscus and chili, and it's like a savory, sweet, kind of mildly spicy, like delicious sauce that you put on fruit. Um, yeah. Whoa. I didn't really realize that. So that that's like a Japanese lineage thing, you think? In Wow. That's interesting. So, w- what's your connection to Mexico? 
Um, my connection to Mexico is that we share a border with it. <laughs> and I've, I have a lot of friends uh, and collectives and artisans that I've been working with over the years um, in Mexico. My husband's also Mexican-American, but his family all lives in the U.S. Cool. Um, w- tell me a little bit more about this project that you're doing about family cures. So how did that start and where is it now? Yeah, so the People's Kitchen Collective, which were a collective of uh, three uh, chef, artists, activists uh, based in Oakland, California. It's myself and Saqib Kaval and Jocelyn Jackson. And we do um, diaspora dinners. We do a free breakfast program in the spirit of the Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense. And we work a lot with different institutions to talk about this idea of what food justice um, is and, and can be. And uh, as part of that, we had a questionnaire that we developed called what actually was it called? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, we had a questionnaire called a recipe for rebellion and it was asking people to kind of trace their own relationship to food and, and, and action and what that meant for them. And one of the questions that's kept sta- standing out to me was uh, when you were a child and you were ill, what did your parents or caretakers or elders give you feed you or do for you to make you feel better? And that question just kept, it was like the question out of all of the words on that paper that just was so big to me, um, because everybody has had that experience. Everybody's been sick at some point in their life, and everyone hopefully has had someone um, come along and do something to help them feel better. Um, and so we ended up turning that into an exhibition uh, for this project called Crosslines at the Smithsonian um, in Washington, D.C. And we made these prescriptions forms up and we asked hundreds of people the same question. You know, when you were sick as a child, what was it that made you feel better? And the really interesting thing to me is like the responses are both so broad and there are so many overlaps. And the the longer that folks, it seems, um, generationally were in the United States, the, to me, the more the response tended towards saltines and Coca-Cola and different foods that were more packaged, Campbell's chicken soup, that kind of thing, um, versus kind of things rooted in plant, more in plants, uh, foods, teas, uh, that kind of thing. And it's really fascinating. I mean, I'm, Again, doing this project as an artist, not as somebody who's kind of crunching the data. Uh, but the response and one of the questions that we asked was also, what does this remedy remind you of? And I think so many people said it remind me, reminds me of home. And it's really also about the care as much as the cure. Like the cure is about the care that somebody gives you in saying, taking an hour out of their day to say, I'm worried about you. I care about you. Here's something. It almost, in some cases, doesn't matter what that thing is. And in a lot of cases, what that was, we're finding out, uh, you know, kind of backed by capital S science that there is totally huge and important and valid scientific reasoning behind why you would give somebody plums, for instance, when their stomach was upset. (laughs) What were those other foods that came up? So one of the really incredible, uh, remedies that came up in different parts of the world was this remedy with an egg to remove fevers and actually not by eating the egg, but really kind of applying it to the body. So one person whose mom said that her mother would take a freshly hard boiled egg and rub it on her body and um, break it open and bumps would appear on the outside of the egg yolk. And she would repeat that over and over and over again until there were no bumps. And by the end of it, 
you wouldn't necessarily be healed completely, but you would have this intense relief and the fever would break. And we've heard of other remedies with putting a, an egg underneath um, a bed if you're sick to hold the fever or um, a raw egg being used to kind of hold the fever. But it's in that those we've heard from from folks um, from Mexico. And it's it's this, you know, I don't I don't know much more about that than these stories that were shared. But I'm just starting to be really fascinated about, um, you know, how how the egg can hold uh, a fever, but also how it appears in places in two different places in the world and probably many more um, that are so far apart from each other. (laughs) Were there other things like that, that people, um, I mean, I think about chicken soup, mm-hmm. right? I think about some. Yeah, we got a lot of uh, Sprite, ginger ale, saltines, um, s- chicken soup, rice soups, lots of rice, lentils, turmeric. Um, one of my favorite remedies was from Norma Lisman, who uh, collaborates with us and it's from my grandfather, actually, a recipe for uh, heart heartache. And it, so it's a cura para mal de amor, um, which is remedy for, for heartbreak. And um, it's a rose, petals, honey, and mint put into a glass. And it has to be see-through. And the most important part of the remedy is that you hold, you cup the, the, cup the glass between your hands and you put your um, love into it before giving the remedy to someone else or drinking it yourself. We actually had somebody try this. Uh, and she said that it was the first time in weeks that she'd been able to go to sleep without crying. Um, and, you know, her her grandfather actually does this with all of his home remedies, regardless of, of what it is. And it's, it's this really beautiful intention um, that's set of kind of transferring that healing power into someone else. So we've, we've actually heard a few um, remedies like that, but... Um, it's 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 really wonderful for me to hear like the breath of what healing means. You know, you could because it, it's so confined to pills. I think <laughs> in, the, in the U.S. and um, and for a, a lot of the kind of parts of our lives. But to think about like, oh no, that there's so many other ways to think about healing uh, and where it happens and how it happens. Well, one thing I think about when you're talking is um, this idea of power. Right. And where power lies in things. So a lot of times when people talk about, well, I guess nutrition and starvation, mm-hmm. right. And, or, or lack of nutrition or obesity, it's all about calories. And for me, somehow that story always feels really flat. And it seems like, I mean, it is really flat, right? Like this soylent or whatever, you know, like people just don't live healthy, balanced, beautiful, powerful interesting feeling lives eating just soylent, right? Like food is so ingrained in what we do. But um, I think when last, last Friday at this event, you guys were, you know, we're talking about decolonizing your bodies and decolonizing your minds and decolonizing your kitchens. And there's this idea that power exists in food and maybe it exists in so many different ways. Is that part of the exploration or? One of the reasons I'm really interested in food and um, this date of 1492 of this like uh, exploration, quote unquote, into the new world and this moment where these staple ingredients that we all know and love, tomatoes, chilies, chocolate, all of that was taken from the Americas and is now staple 
throughout the rest of the world. And it ties into me to this question of like uh, gentrification that's happening in our neighborhoods now and the erasure of, of the histories of those ingredients. I think what gentrification does and what colonialism does is it erases memory. And that's something that Sakib Kaval, who I cook with talks about a lot. And I think that part of that erasure, so much is lost. So much is lost. And so I have this one story that, that I tell people of this, this moment where I was cooking with my grandmother in India. And she, the first thing she does whenever she's cooking any kind of fish or, or uh, she doesn't actually cook meat, but um, anytime it's cooked in the household is she takes a handful of turmeric and she throws it on there. And she, uh, she does that, I realized, because they don't have refrigerators and turmeric is antibacterial and it's antiseptic. And so you're taking this thing and you're basically coating it and protecting it. Um, while you're going about, you know, doing the rest of your kitchen prep and then you, you go to cook it. And I've seen that step taken out of so many recipes and it's like added in later. Um, and that knowledge and that wisdom, it's like, how do you know if you, if you don't know, you don't know. And how do, how do we preserve that knowledge and wisdom in a way that like, if we lose that, that's a part of, you know, if we get stuck in the woods and we just happen to have a package of turmeric, we could keep ourselves alive a couple more days if we knew that little trick. <laughs> but I think about, I think about some of these interviews that I did with people who were starving and who would talk about resiliency, like in terms of like, well, we don't really like yucca, but when there's nothing else, we dig it up and then we make tortillas out of yucca or whatever, you know? And think that those two stories are related to each other, right? There's these kind of invisible threads that pull through people's lives that are about resiliency and adaptation and change. Um, but they're so ordinary mm-hmm. until they disappear mm-hmm. that maybe they're not even seen sometimes. And I think we, we all do those things. Like we all have our turmerics that we throw on our, that we throw on our meat. I guess I see your work as like this, there's this shining light on what the potency of those things are and that articulation of something like that. Like you have to hold this cure for a heartache with love. Otherwise it's just roses and (laughs) right. I mean, so it like changes from ordinary to extraordinary, like with these steps and um, yeah, I'm not sure what that question is exactly, but it, it it feels important. It feels like it feels like that makes sense that you're an artist mm. rather than a sociologist or rather than some someone else there because there's some magic happening. There's some in, invisibility being made visible in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, does it get easier to see as you do it more? One of the reasons I'm drawn to. Um, the work that I do is because I have such a sense of wonder about it. And I feel like I'm always just learning new things. And I think that anytime that spark goes off, I'm like, wow, you know, that's, <laughs> that's when I, I guess that's my version of seeing it. That's how, that's how I know I've, I've, I've seen something. Does it happen all the time? That's a good question. It happens. I, it never ceases to amaze me. Like I, at this point, I should assume that, you know, ev- every ingredient has an amazing story. And I, I guess I do believe that. But I am always blown away. Like, I was just looking up yucca. And yucca is from indigenous to uh, South America. It's not Brazil. 
And I found this out yesterday that it was basically taken by the Portuguese and then introduced into Africa, where it is an incredibly important staple crop. I mean, African food without yucca is like, what? You know? And, and it's, you know, it's a process that, again, took like 500 years, you know, which is no small amount of time, but just how plants and people and bodies are resilient is just mind blowing. Because I think the story of these, the story of this food is as much the story of the people um, that eat it, that grow it, that transport it, that have traveled with it, that have snuck it across borders, that have put seeds in their pockets. Um, I mean, that's the food that we eat in America today. It was like majority of it was snuck into people's luggage on the way um, over from a very long journey. And so where do you think this idea of, I don't know, I hate to use the word ownership because that's not exactly what I mean, but like what does sovereignty look like in that? And how do you tell, like what's the narrative of who gets what and who gets to claim what within that space? Do you mean sovereignty like... Um... Who, like peanuts, who claims that as theirs? And what happens when more than one group or more than one... I feel like person or family, I feel like in all these different skills, what happens when it's theirs and it's theirs and it's theirs? Is it then ours or is this a different story emerge? It's an interesting question in the face of a a lot of uh, articles that I've seen recently about this question of cultural appropriation through food and, you know, who, like, as you were saying, like, who gets to cook what and who has the agency to cook that? I think the difference between, there's a difference between appropriating and appropriating meaning erasing the history of that ingredient versus learning from that ingredient and using it along with all of its all, all of its story. It's a tricky line, and I don't know that there are any kind of hard and fast rules around it. But um, I learn from so many other people about food traditions that are not mine, um, and so many of those ingredients get kind of. Uh, incorporated into my own diet and the way that I cook. I think that's another very American kind of way of, of being. Um, but it's really about not losing the meaning and the geography and the story behind those ingredients and honoring that. Yeah. How do you do that? I mean, if one were just to think like, to use food as an opportunity, like in as you know, part of like your daily way of living to think about histories of colonization or liberation or or just being in a complex world. Like how would you how would you begin to do that? I think one of the most important things that people can do for themselves is cook their own food. And I really do think that it's one of the things that's gonna save us in the this crazy capitalist system that we live in. And there are a lot of forces working against us to prevent us from actually doing that, to tell us that it's too hard, that it's easier to eat out, that it's easier to go get something on the street corner or that all of your meals have to come from a restaurant or in a box uh, of ingredients that gets delivered to your door. And, you know, I support folks eating and, and nourishing themselves in all the ways that they find right for themselves. And there are some amazing restaurants, food businesses, projects that are doing incredible work. But I also think that it's really scary to me to think that we, that, that this thing that we need to do every single day has become this thing that's for a lot of people, very kind of scary almost like, Oh, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to do with it. Um, And I think 
it starts there. And that portal is like the kind of window into kind of knowing more about that deeper connection to things as an artist. Like I always say that the materials like let them, it's my biggest challenge to let the materials speak to me. And like the tomato will tell you what the tomato wants it to be. Like the tube of purple paint will tell you what the tube of purple paint wants it to be. If you just give it enough time. And sometimes it literally means getting a bowl of tomatoes and having it next to you and staring at it or just being around it long enough for it to tell you something. Um, but it will tell you all of those things. You'll have those exchanges with people at the grocery store. Or if you're growing it, you know, you'll, somebody will tell you this incredible story about how, you know, wherever, you know, they are from, this was done in a certain way. And I think that that, like, that exchange, like food exchange is so many hands by the time it, from the seed to your table, that the more you are involved in that arc, the more that you'll learn about that. You kind of can't ignore it in a lot of ways because people will tell you. <laughs> well, so two things come up for me. One is that um, I want to hear you talk about care mm -hmm. as a concept and how that exists in these complex things that were that you're untangling through creating these meals and these experiences for people. And then the other thing is visibility, mm -hmm. right? So I just recently interviewed Saru Jayaraman and was thinking a lot about restaurants and restaurant workers. And just like anything else, like I'm very focused on farmers. I've always worked with farmers and it was so interesting to me to complexify, to complexify it, right? To get interested, to get curious, to sit with that a little bit and think about how, how those hands are touching my food and everybody else's food all the time, whether, whether you, whether you notice it or not. So, um, how do you address those things? Maybe let's start with care first. Mm. I, the, the idea of care goes back to this kitchen remedies project that we do as the people's kitchen collective. And, um, that, and I think also for my father, food was, uh, at times incredibly scarce. He um, lived through one famine himself and, uh, and really I think knows the value of food and what it means to not have enough. And I think because of that also food became a way of reward and of uh, celebration. Um, and you know, the, stories of my grandmother picking the, the perfect banana and saving it just for him so he could have his one banana. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Those, it, it, it's that that care um, is so closely tied to it. I, I recently um, did a meal for a few friends at home and one of the things that, that I was thinking about was what was the, what moment in my life did I feel the most love and care through food? And for me, it's the care packages. It even says care in the, in the, in the name of it. I've never thought about that before, but these, these packages that, that my aunts in other countries would make for me to send me off to the airport. And like I would you know, take a box of candy or something. And so she would, she would take it out of the box and she would use that box to pack it full of hard boiled eggs. This is my aunt in India. Um, hard-boiled eggs and um, fried bread and some, you know, probably a couple pieces of fruit or something and tie it all up with a string and send me off uh, to the airport with it. And just like the experience of just like unwrapping that on the airplane um, or in a bus terminal somewhere. And just, it's like 
heartbreaking and heartwarming to me all at the same time, every time it happens. Um, because it's a sign that you're leaving someplace. Um, but it's also this, like, this gesture of care that even though, you know, she and I may not share the same language that I, it is so clear that both of us understand what that means. Um, and yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that I think is what, uh, how I know the power of food because I feel like I've held people's love in my hand. It's totally visceral, right? I think to a fault, I always say yes when people offer me food. <laughs> And I'm very offended when people say no to my food. And um, I don't know how I would survive, actually, without that act of love all the time, right? And that draws me in deeper and deeper to food all the time because because it's so tangible, right? It's, it's like these actual creations of love. And with all its imperfection and all of its, it reflects all the things around it and yeah, that makes me, I get kind of sappy thinking about that but with all of those acts of care that way. And for me, that's a real reason to eat at home and to eat in other people's homes and to continue that is to, is to have that visibility and to also have that vulnerability of like what, what it looks like for people to, to try to love you that, that way and to try to love other people that way. So I'm curious, like, when you guys make these big events for community with People's Kitchen Collective, I don't know what size they normally are. I don't know what they look like, but you did a lot of talking at this event I went to in Oakland because you were invoking all these things. Is that a part of your of your work? Uh, yes. We always, with our work, want to invoke both the struggle and the celebration of the ingredients and the people. I think that we experience specifically as uh, folks of color this reality that is like at once both really kind of painful and celebratory and I think that that's that's certainly the way that you know I live my day you know thing and and I think many people do is moments of incredible joy and pain that are sometimes simultaneously simultaneous and I think that that's one thing that that there isn't a lot of space for in in restaurants because it is about pleasure. Food is so much about pleasure and about like having this like, you know, we talk about food porn or, you know, food photos and it's like everybody's so obsessed with getting the next delicious, expensive thing or cheap thing or whatever thing, but it's about consuming, 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 consuming. And uh, we do some funny things like we uh, don't publish menus before people come because we don't want it to be about I get this, I get that. It's no, you're you're coming for the experience and we have to have a mutual trust about we'll take care of you when you're here. And we do invoke ancestors. It's actually one of the things that all three of us um, do that that is probably not standard in most uh, food businesses <laughs> is that we call in um, our our ancestors to guide us through the kitchen. We sage the kitchen before we start. We take photos of our ancestors with us um, to all of the events that we do. Uh, we sometimes have the, the audience also call out the names of their own ancestors into the space. The food just tastes better when they're there. It's just, you know, it's added, added insurance that, <laughs> that everything's going to be all right. Um, and we do want to presence again, that like migration of these foods. So yeah, we, we talk a bit. (laughs) 
can you talk about paradox in that? So that celebration and that struggle that exists hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, I, so for my, my father and actually, so my, my mother's Japanese Colombian. So there was a, again, that, that famine that happened to my great, it was my great, uh, sorry, my grandparents generation, um, that, was really the catalyst for all of the migration out of Japan. And then also in India, um, you know, my uncle survived through two famines, my, my father through one. Um, and I, I don't think it's an accident that the way that he celebrates is by cooking far more food than four people could ever eat. And I think for me, that's kind of part of that paradox of that plenty and um, not enough. And um, it's really complicated. <laughs> But that's the way that he expresses his love and care. So, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm curious about the role of gender, too, in this. So I think um, something that felt so good to me on Friday night was this this uh, willingness to be with the complexity of these stories, right? So that was kind of addressing race, and it was addressing class, and it was addressing history, and it was addressing gender. Like there were, that was a mixed group of people cooking and serving food in every way. That way. And so how do you address that in your process? And how do you talk about that? Yeah, it's, it does actually, we do address it intentionally, because some of the things that feel sometimes kind of like, Oh, uh, you know, somebody's kind of more naturally inclined to do one thing or the other. Well, public perception of that is actually very different in terms of like who is a quote unquote leader in the group. And we're really committed to not having a hierarchy. One of the best compliments that we have ever gotten was we have a, a young chef, Darius, um, who is in the under 10 crowd <laughs> that comes and, uh, loves cooking with us. Actually, he comes out and, and volunteers with us and, and his mother, uh, Rose, um, who's an incredible chef as well. And, so the he asked us like, "Hey, who's in charge here?" And somebody said, "Well, who do you think is in charge?" And he looked around the room and he's like, "I don't know. I can't tell." And he said, "Well, wh- why why do you need to know who's in charge?" And he said, "Well, well, I want to get a job here, so I want to know who to ask for a job." <laughs> and it was just like such a cool compliment to have this this little young one, you know, ask us. Like one who's in charge because I want to come back, but recognizing that there are power structures in place and that we weren't also playing into that, that there wasn't a lead um, necessarily. And the fact that he could see that was like a revalidation of of like, yes, that's, this is actually what we're trying to create. Commer- uh, commercial kitchens, the language around it and the positions are based in the French military and all of it's very uh, patriarchal. It's very hierarchical. And there's no lack of examples of how folks of color usually are back of house and not only back of house, but, you know, washing dishes, um, doing kind of the, the, the less glorified tasks in, in the kitchen. Um, and, you know, how that space includes women and particularly women of color. Uh, it's, it's the exact opposite by design of a home kitchen. And I think uh, what we try to do is really take the best of those to try to decolonize that space and um, make the food in conditions that don't replicate that system of oppression. That's a complicated thing to do, <laughs> which kind of leads me to like, 
I don't know why I'm asking for a lot of how-tos today. It's kind of funny, but what does it mean to decolonize your kitchen? Like, how do you decolonize your home kitchen? I mean, there's all this talk about local food. There's like lots of places there are farmer's markets and lots of places there are no farmer's markets, right? Um, there's, there's price points. There's all this kind of ability for access to food. So like, how do you start to decolonize your kitchen? How is that a different way of thinking about this than stories that reify people's stories of oppression or alternatively all of this sort of like disgusting exotification of of every part of food right from the exquisiteness of dining to the i guess this kind of myth of perfection about what you could do with your body and your mind through food yeah, there's an incredible resource uh, decolonize your diet by Luz and Catriona and who are uh, both professors and have written this book about exactly that decolonizing your diet and and i what i love about their project is that they really take it down to okay let's talk about rice and beans you know and i think that a lot of there's a lot of foods that get classified as kind of poverty food and sometimes people will be shamed for eating them and then other times people will be glorified for eating them um depending on the powers that be and you know what's selling on supermarket shelves and all those things but um, eating with your hands, the way you eat food too, is is one of those things that people have been shamed for all over the world for eating with your hands and um, and you know not using metal <laughs> between you and your food to mediate your experience. Why would you want metal in between you and your food? So terrible, cold. Um, <laughs> um but. That it's the yeah it's the it's the way that we eat it's the things that we eat it's just I think for me decolonizing is about an awareness uh, about questioning it's about not just accepting something that you see on a store at face value and asking like no but where did that come from no but really where did that come from no but really where actually did that come from <laughs> and what is its story and. I'm thinking about just the complexity of home kitchen politics in this and how we were just talking about the pleasure of receiving love from love and care from all of these people. And uh, that I guess ideally, for me, that starts farther back, right? That 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 you get to participate in all parts of that process of love um, with the paradoxes that exist there and get to address them through cooking and eating and cleaning and all the parts that go along with food, right? That we we get a choice with this kind of mindfulness of using this paradigm of decolonization to, to find moments of togetherness and ask questions where there are moments of apartness in it, right? I, I hear that through your stories with your family, that it's messy. Yeah. Always going to be messy. And that's the magic too, right? Yeah, I was talking to a, a friend of mine's mother, and and she said that uh, her hope, her wish for one of her wishes for the future is that food is no longer used as a weapon, and that happens on a huge scale. Whether you're talking about access to food, the fact that the just insanity of the fact that we have more food in this world than there are people, and we can't get it to people to actually feed them. Uh, but she was talking about it on a much more personal level, in that. Her stepmother really had used food as a way of withholding from them as children and punishing them, you know, and and reprimanding them and and um, and she, not so coincidentally, is an amazing cook now and and a really 
just one of the women that I learned how to cook from as an adult. Uh, but it is, it's such a place of both harm and healing in so many ways. So how do you teach people how to cook? You know, I don't, well, let's see. How do I teach people how to cook? Uh, I've <laughs> talked a lot about feeding the masses, I guess, cause we feed upwards of 500 people sometimes. And, um, I do a lot of community fundraisers and things like that. And I, uh, I actually love the kind of messy experience of just having like a crew of folks of just all different skill levels and just an eagerness and ages too. And just coming with an eagerness to just get their, get their hands in in it. Um, And I think that it, it's so overwhelming to people to think about cooking for more than a couple people. That's the biggest hurdle. And I think if we can break it down into smaller, more managed, like, you know, 400 people is just a hundred groups of four people. For me, if I think about it that way, it's a lot less intimidating. <laughs> and, and that's one of the, you know, the, the ways that I talk to people about like, oh, you're thinking about feeding a hundred people. Okay. We'll divide it into four. That's only 25 people. That's about how many people you had at potluck last week. You're good. Just make four of those. <laughs> that's amazing. So, so you use a lot of, um, trying to, figure out how people can contextualize it in their own lives with what they already know how to do. Absolutely. And, you know, cooking's not for everybody. That That's fine, too. Just, you know, buddy up with somebody who likes to do it. Maybe you can grow something, they can cook it. I don't know, you know. And, and dishwashing is a good thing, yeah, too, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> not, not underrated. Um, well, maybe let's wrap it up by talking about, like, acts of imagination. Because I think a lot of these things are these... They sound like experiments in organizing to me, but uh, they are these kind of inherently utopic possibilities that then people get to go back to their lives and do whatever they want with that. So as an artist, what is that? Why do you do that? And what do you hope from that, I guess? So I really learned how to cook in quantity through a leftist football club, soccer club, like Anyway, not American football, um, and which is a group that started in in Oakland and now is in Oakland, LA, uh, the Twin Cities, Chicago, New York, and DC. And it's a group of activists, educators, all sorts of community folks that just love football. Um, football, uh, sorry, soccer. <laughs> and I remember, you know, just there was a game and I said, oh, you know, instead of going out, why don't you just, could I just come over and eat? And it was the first and last time that everybody fit around the table because that was eight people. And after that, it was like 25, 40, 50 people. And I just kept cooking and cooking and cooking. And I think the reason that I kept cooking was because I saw that, uh, you know, on the email list, there would be a spike in people who are sending out like job you know, opportunities or like, hey, I have a place to rent or, you know, these things that are unrelated to food in a way are completely related to this experience of sharing and, and, and eating together. And I think that's what kept me in it. It was just this fascinating kind of like, oh, okay, like if we do this and if we eat together, then this person can get a job and this person can, you know, feel like they, you know, have a new home, even though they just moved here. And that is, it's, that's, I think the reason that, you know, I'm so drawn to these like 
huge events where they're you're really building community and um and 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 growing it like you're really just like kind of multiplying community every time that you share food um yeah that's pretty transformative (laughs) how do we follow along with the people's kitchen collective and what you're up to next so i have uh, a website it's my name sita bomick.com s as in sam i t a b h a u m i k.com and uh the people's kitchen collective is online at people's kitchen collective.com and you can find us on instagram and on facebook and all that good stuff and uh we do community meals uh, based in the Bay Area, but also have been traveling a bit lately. And so we definitely hope that you can join us at the table. Perfect. Thanks for being here with me today. Thanks. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.